everyone. This is the Crime Cafe, and I'm Debbie Mack, your host. And this is where you get to hear from mystery, suspense, and crime fiction authors that you may not otherwise have heard of. Um, let me uh, just explain a few things before I introduce my guest. Uh, the Crime Cafe is at my website, crimecafe.net or debbiemack.com. And uh, if you go there and click on Crime Cafe, you can find all the interviews I've done with authors in video and audio form, as well as a buy button for the Crime Cafe story package, which is only 99 cents and consists of stories uh, donated by all the authors being interviewed on the show. So I hope you'll check that out. And uh, I also have a, a Facebook page for the Crime Cafe if you would like to check that out as well. Uh, so come by and give us a like, please. Um, with that, on with the show. Uh, I have with me today a really interesting author. Her name is Donna Fletcher Crow, and she's an Anglophile from Idaho <laughs> who has written 45 books. How impressive. Most of them novels of British history. So uh, I'd like to welcome Donna Fletcher Crow and say, great to have you here. Thanks for coming by. Hello, Debbie. Thank you so much for having me on the Crime Cafe. This is a delightful opportunity to get to uh, meet new people and, and uh, share with your readers. I really appreciate it. Wonderful. I'm, I'm thrilled. Um, you are coming out with a new monastery mystery murder, and this is what, the fourth one in the series? That's right. A newly crimsoned reliquary. Um, and we have our heroine, Felicity. I should back up just a little bit to explain that. Felicity is a young American woman who was teaching school in London. And as you know, sort of exciting as that sounds, just doing anything in London sounds good to me. But Felicity found teaching school was just not the right thing for her. She was frankly bored. And, but because she was a, a classics major, uh, there's not an awful lot you can do on the street with uh, a Greek and Latin background. But her uh, Latin professor had told her that the church is one place that Latin is still actually used today. And so really on something of a whim, uh, Felicity had a, a, well, sort of a nominal uh, Christian upbringing, I guess you might say. As a matter of fact, at one point she explained to uh, Father Anthony, who becomes the, the hero of the series, um, that her family were CEO Christians, uh, Christmas and Easter only. She said, we never missed a service. Every Christmas, every Easter, we were in church. And that was about the extent of her upbringing. But she had liked those services. And this was an opportunity to use her Latin. So she went off to a monastery in Yorkshire uh, to study theology. The monastery is run by monks, uh, but they also employ uh, lecturers who are not monks. And that is the status of Father Antony. Uh, he is a priest, but in the Anglican church, so it is okay for him to get married. And that's I want to make that very clear to my readers. Um, mm -hmm. I adore the Thornbirds, but this is not, it's not the story I'm writing. <laughs> I remember that book. 
So anyway, um, in this one, in, the, in number four, uh, Felicity is off to a monastery in Oxford, well, a convent in Oxford, to do some translating uh, for the sisters there. Uh, and I have used the, um, the uh, Sisters of the Love of God, which is an actual convent in Oxford, the sisters there are very um, intellectual. They're very the world worldwide known uh, for their publishing, and they want to publish this ancient manuscript. If Felicity's going to translate it for them, uh, they would be capable of doing it, but they just really don't have time. So they're having her come in to do it. And from then on, uh, the that's the troubles start. Uh, Anthony later shows up with a group of students because he teaches church history and he is taking them to Oxford to uh, study the historic sites there. And uh, the particular point for where we are in the calendar year is that they are in Oxford at the time of All Saints and All Souls, which of course we know as Halloween. And that's why I particularly wanted to share this story uh, with your readers at, at this time, because um, uh, it's so appropriate for the season. And we get back to the real roots of what our Halloween uh, holiday is really all about. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, a lot of people are under the impression that it's pagan. Is there any truth to that? Well, of course, it depends on your interpretation. But the the roots that I look at are the roots from the church, uh, where we acknowledge uh, saints, however you want to interpret that word. Uh, it can mean people who are actually uh, canonized by the church, or it can mean any departed person in your life who has had a really good influence on you. I mean, I look back and I consider my mother a saint in, in that sense uh, of being a, a, a wonderful uh, person who her life was lived for the good. And uh, so it, we honor those people um, at, in, at the All Saints, All Souls season. And then uh, we get into things like the, uh, the Day of the Dead in Mexico, and we do, I do talk, Anthony talks about that just a little bit in the book, uh, where uh, in Mexico families go to the cemeteries and uh, sometimes have a picnic on the, on the grave of their departed. Um, it's a time when we could say the veil is thin between this world and the next world. And to get back to your original question, if you want to consider that pagan, uh, you know, that could be your interpretation of it. Uh, but I, I think it's it's a very valid, can be a very meaningful uh, a concept. Actually, I tend to agree with you. I think uh, it's a very fascinating concept. And, and it's idea. part of, yes, Debbie, but it's part of life. Um, exactly. Uh, you know, Life and death are, are sort of two sides of the coin, and our current uh, society doesn't really like to think about that very much. We sort of want to push death to the 
to the background, unlike perhaps, um, oh, in medieval times when when death was was more of an everyday occurrence than than it is now. Mm -hmm. um, but it is something that that we need to think about, and it actually, if if it's viewed in the right way, it there can be comfort involved as well as loss. And so that's important. I think that's a really great point. Um, now, this is a contemporary series, but involves a lot of historical detail, correct? That's right. And this has been a very fun thing to develop through the series, uh, particularly from Felicity's standpoint, uh, because when she goes up to study for the priesthood, she wants to become an Anglican priest, or in America, we would call it Episcopalian. Mm -hmm. um, she's doing it from the social justice standpoint. She's young, she's female, she's American, and she is going to change the world. <laughs> and she doesn't care about anything that happened in the past. She's looking totally toward the future and um, what she can accomplish. And then she comes face to face with Father Anthony, who is a church history lecturer, and is trying to convince her that and, and help her to see that if we don't understand the past, we can't understand the present. And we have to know where we've been in order to see where we are going. And at first, she is absolutely not having any of that. <laughs> um, but as they are involved in together, circumstances throw them together to solve crimes. And these crimes have their roots deep in the past. And uh, several of my reviewers have, have compared this to, uh, to some of Dan Brown's plots, where everything goes way, way back. And Felicity uh, um, begins to see that, that, oh, yeah, I did need to know that. And at first, she's just rolling her eyes every time Father Anthony starts on one of his uh, sort of lectures or storytelling of things about, about, well, now we need to understand what happened here and, and, and all that. And she's like, oh, spare me. <laughs> but now, you know, four books into the series, she has seen the value of this. And she's saying, oh, well, Anthony, what happened here? What's the meaning of this? So she is learning. And I always said I thought that a lot of the fun of the series was growing Felicity up. She really is very immature uh, in the first book and absolutely has Father Anthony pulling his hair because he does care for her and she will rush off into danger. And now she's uh, she, she is growing up a bit by book four. <laughs> I was going to ask you about the general story arc, and you've pretty much described it, I think. <laughs> the maturation process. People often ask me, you know, well, this is book four. Can, can I read this, or do I have to go back to book one? Uh, each book is a standalone in the sense of the story is complete. I tie up all of the mm -hmm. story questions and the plot lines at the end of each book. But um, the relationship between the characters has grown immeasurably. And, um, and yes, I believe Felicity has matured. And even though Anthony is older and, and is mature in a sense, uh, when they start 
um, he still has a lot to learn too. And um, he is gaining a great deal in confidence. Uh, at first, he has a lot of things in his background he hasn't dealt with. And uh, he starts out thinking he's going to become a monk. And by the end, by now into to book four, um, they are engaged. Hmm. And I will uh, just uh, give you a peek into book number five, which will be out soon. And it does end with their wedding. So oh we've got a, got a lot to look forward to. Wow. I was going to say, um, is some of her rashness kind of a... Um a side effect of her being an American. <laughs> I just wonder oh, because, yeah. oh yes. <laughs> and I need to say that uh, in, in uh, full disclosure here, that a lot of Felicity's experiences are based on our daughter's experiences because our daughter did study classics at Oxford, did teach school in London and find it boring. <laughs> and did go off to a monastery to study theology. And the monastery that is uh, the background of, in my book, the I call it the community of the transfiguration, is a very thinly veiled, uh, well, I almost say copy, of the monastery where Felicity, uh, no, where Elizabeth, our daughter, studied. Um, the personalities of the women are not at all alike. Mm -hmm. When I started out on book one, um, I, I just almost without thinking, I was giving Felicity, it, yes, I was giving Felicity Elizabeth's characteristics. And um, Elizabeth is an absolute delight. She uh, she can be headstrong, yes, but but she is devout. And she is, um, it's just, has been a wonderful daughter through the years. A sweet, uh, obedient, in spite of being headstrong. But, you know, on about page three or four, I realized, oh, this is kind of boring. You know, you need a heroine or hero with something to fight against. They need to have room to develop. So I went back and just flipped a lot of Elizabeth's uh, personality characteristics mm -hmm. in Felicity. And she's been a lot of fun to work with since then. I think that's, you know, where a lot of characters tend to come from. You, you find somebody in real life and then you take that person and sort of change them into something uh -huh. that will fit into a plot that will be exciting. Well, I think that most characters are are a composite of Absolutely. people we've met or people we've read about or of course in my case i use a lot of historical figures and um try to make them as as realistic as as i think they would have been in history you must do a lot of research for these books uh i noticed you said you travel to all the places that you write about how much traveling do you do as part of your research well, I love to research and I try never to write about a place I haven't actually visited. Once in a while it will happen that the plot will take a turn. I didn't see that it was going to. And uh, of course now that is a lot easier to make up for with the internet and things. But there really is nothing like 
actually standing where your characters are stood and you know you know what does it sound like what what can i hear how does it feel of course being in england it usually feels cold and it's usually raining <laughs> we get a lot of rain in these books um but uh, and, and the historic sites you know uh, walking over the crumbled stones and climbing the stairs of an old castle and then looking out from the turret or, or whatever. Um, there's, you know, I, I really couldn't write about it uh, without having experienced it. Let's see. Uh, you also write or have written a Victorian true crime series. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Lord oh, Danvers, Lord Danvers mysteries. And, um, Lord Danvers is fictional, and I wrap a fictional crime around each one of the true crimes that oh. uh, that Lord Danvers uh, investigates. Um, I've done the I've, the way this started was I ran across the in researching something else, which is usually the way these things happen. I ran across the Stanfield Hall murders, which happened. Uh, well, near Norwich in in uh, England, uh, kind of on the north coast, a very nice middle-class family on a very quiet evening in their lovely home, um, a man just walked in and slaughtered them. And it was, you know, the, the contrast of the very ordered, very nice, very proper Victorian life, and then just the bloodbath of what occurred to this family and the aftermath. And I got very interested in it and started reading about that. And very good records have been kept of the Stanfield Hall uh, murders. And even it was such a big case at the time that there were even China ornaments made of Stanfield Hall and China figures of the uh, people that were involved, and I've seen them in the museum there. I guess it would sort of be the the, uh, the counterpart of making action figures of, of some event today mm -hmm. or something. Um, so I, I started out then with the, the Stanfield Hall murders then. Uh, I've also used Burke and Hare, the very famous resurrectionists in that, the first book, I should say, is called A Most Inconvenient Death, and it's on my website. The next one is called Grave Matters. It takes place in Scotland, and it uses the Burke and Hare murders. Burke and Hare were resurrectionist men, uh, which means that they sold uh, corpses to um, uh, universities for medical studies, and it had to be done through the back door. It was illegal for medical students to study human bodies, but very important for them to be able to do that. The only problem with Burke and Hare is that they didn't always wait for their the corpses to die natural deaths. <laughs> <laughs> they were helping them along a little bit. And so they had, and uh, uh, they also, they, the, the idea of the resurrectionist man was digging up graves to sell the bodies from the graves. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it wasn't uh, just like a, a doctor whose who's 
patient had died and the family said, yes, you can use the body for medical research. This was, was very much uh, criminal activity. And so I used those in, a, in another book. And uh, then have used, there are four uh, books in that series. I would love to do another one if, if I can find time. <laughs> How did a, uh, a young girl from Idaho end up becoming so fascinated with England? <laughs> I just got to ask. $64,000 question, Debbie, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I was an only child uh, living on a farm, and so I was my father's son as, as well. Uh, I had to fill that role. I would go uh, pheasant hunting with him this time of year. We rode horses together. I was a cowgirl. Uh, I have even played around with uh, theories of um, genetic memory because our family is from England and Scotland. And so I thought, you know, I have a throwback to my great, great, great grandmother. Um, but somehow when I started reading English novels and it did happen at the 10th grade of uh, my English teacher just said, he started me out on Wuthering Heights, which to this day I think is a strange place to start a young person on English literature. Jane Eyre maybe, but Wuthering Heights I still don't understand. <laughs> but somehow um, reading that novel just took, and I just, I resonated with the English writers. And of course, Jane Austen is my great literary love. And uh, once I discovered that, I really never looked back. Wow. That's really something. It reminds me of the effect that the going to Ireland and the UK had on me. Because mm -hmm. I have a genealogy that goes back to those countries. And uh, I just felt this incredible kinship. <laughs> exactly. That's you right. Know, a feeling of belonging or something. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so very it's, true. And it's the very uh, cool that you're doing that in your fiction. Well, the English writers, and I think we find the same thing with English movies, um, television programs. They're a little slower paced. They spend more time on characterization than on plot. Um, uh, develop the backgrounds a little more thoroughly than, than a lot of American writers do. Um, or that then American movie makers will give time to in an English movie, you'll get the camera lingering on a beautiful scene. And that suits my internal rhythms. My internal rhythms are very slow, which is one reason I so rely on my editors when I'm writing because uh, I, I know I, I can go on a bit. And so <laughs> if my, editor says, okay, you know, you need to pick up the pace here, cut this, uh, then I'll go back and do it. And that's fine. I, but I need to be told that because I just, uh, the slower pace is, is more natural to me. But you have editors to help you with that. So it happens. And I'm very fortunate to have always had good editors. And um, in recent times, my editors have are English. Uh, one of them, uh, is an English woman living in America, uh, and then the other one is actually based in England, based in Oxford, who happens to have a classics background, and she's so excited about Felicity's work because she says, oh, I get to use my Latin. And, 
you'll frequently correct me if I if I get it wrong. Uh, so yes, I it, it's very important to me. Although wow. occasionally we do get an Americanism creeping in in the, the <laughs> first editions of the first book of uh, the monastery murders, I had my uh, police lights or police and ambulance uh, blinking red and yellow. And that went past all of the copy editing and, and everything else. And then we suddenly, somebody discovered that, whoops, no, in England they blink blue. Uh -huh. And so, you know, we caught it for the second edition. But those things do creep in. So I, we, I, we fight it all the time, you know, trying not to, uh, not to get the Americanisms in. But that's one reason it's important to me to have, in a contemporary novel, to have an American heroine mm -hmm. because then if she does something American, well, that's fine. Even though she's living in England, she's still an American, so she can do that and that's valid. Yeah. Well, that that's really interesting. And um, <laughs> yeah, the Americanisms versus the British uh, is an issue. <laughs> but it having is. an American uh, lead character helps a lot, I would think. It does. Um, yeah. So, well, I'll have to wrap things up, but I just wanted to ask you one more thing before we go. Sure. And that is, since you and I are both Doctor Who fans. Oh, yes. Which Doctor is your favorite? <laughs> um, well, I'll have to say David Tennant. He has always oh. been a favorite actor of mine anyway. And uh, I think he just sort of epitomizes the, uh, well, the craziness of Doctor Who, and yet a sincerity underneath the craziness. And he's got such long legs that he's so good when he says, run, he can really run. <laughs> that is true, absolutely. David Tennant is uh, a great actor. And yes. as I understand it, has played in Shakespeare productions and you know, other serious uh, types of drama. And uh, I've seen him, I saw him in, I think it was Broadchurch. Yes. An oh, yes. A very gritty, uh, yes, his Scottish accent coming through there. Yes. I know. <laughs> but yes, you can, you can get his, uh, his Hamlet on Netflix. He did Hamlet with Patrick Stewart. Wow. Uh, yes, which is just, oh, it's marvelous. And they do it in modern dress in tuxedos. Oh very stylish, very classy production. Wow. Well, with that, I will have to say uh, it's been great talking to you, Donna. Oh, yes. And, um, I will have to check out uh, David Tennant as Hamlet on Netflix. Oh, we now have Netflix. Yay. Incredibly <laughs> handsome. You really must. <laughs> I must. I simply must. Okay, then. So, um, as I said, uh, if if you would, please go to my website, debbiemack.com or crimecafe.net and click on the Crime Cafe uh, link to find all of the uh, webisodes or the web interviews, I should say, not webisodes, and uh, podcasts, which you can download from there or you can get it from iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. And there's also Crime Cafe merchandise, as well as the uh, story package. So do check out my website. And with that, I want to thank Donna again for being on the show and wish you the best of luck with the new book and all the books to come. 
Uh, may Felicity have a wonderful future and you as well. Thanks so much. Thank you, Debbie. It's been a delight. Great. Thanks. See you all in two weeks. Thank you.